0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. So um, every single Sunday that I'm preaching outside, I always write um, the page numbers on on my manuscript. So just in case the wind blows it over, I know the order. And I've never had to use it until today. So that only goes to show you got to stay prepared because you never know. So, as many of us know, assuming can often lead us into trouble. We may think we know what people want or what people need, and sometimes we can make choices without checking. Most of the time it works out fine, but when it doesn't work out, there can be consequences. Mistakes can be made, feelings can be hurt, etc. We saw that kind of unfold last week when our dear pastor, sent out the email that the potluck had been postponed until this week. Um, And not everyone got the memo, and some people brought food. Now, having some cookies and food on a non-potluck Sunday is far from the end of the world, right? And Stephen gave me permission to drag his name through the mud for this. But, still, very small example, but larger picture, assuming can very quickly get us into trouble. Last week even preached on the danger of becoming bored with God. Today we'll take a look at a similar warning. Don't assume what God wants or how he will act. Don't assume what God wants or how he will act. When we assume what God wants or how God will act, we can very easily slip into our own personal bias. We can hear things about how God wants us to be joyful, how God wants us to be happy in him, and we can automatically assume that That means that God wants us to be joyful and happy in the things that make us joyful and happy. Whether that's money or fame or other means, then we can be disappointed when we don't get it. Or we assume that just because we follow God that our lives are going to be perfect. Or conversely, that if someone does not follow God, that they're going to have an awful life. But the good news is that we don't have to assume what God wants or how he will act. He plainly tells us in his Word. His perfect character is all we need to know how he is pleased or how he's going to act. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us literally everything about God, but it reveals enough about his character for us to be able to humbly seek him. And when we pray, we can fill in the gaps on that, as he lovingly tells us. When we ask him to reveal himself to us, he lovingly does. Remember the words of James, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. But in our text today, we'll see how the people of Jerusalem were assuming how God would want to be worshipped and how he would act. It's a warning to us today, but we'll also see a massive encouragement hidden there as well. So in this text, we'll see two dangers and one encouragement. Two dangers and one encouragement. One, don't assume what's pleasing to God. Two, don't assume how God will act. And the three, the encouragement... Have faith that God will grow his people in humanity. So, first, we'll take a look at Don't Assume What's Pleasing to God, verses 1 through 12. But before we jump in, remember the text we are studying is from the prophet Isaiah to God's people. And this chapter is specifically to the people of Jerusalem, which is the main hub of God's people at that time. And that might seem a little confusing as it seems like Isaiah is writing to someone named Ariel. Look at the first verse. "Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Now Isaiah isn't talking to the Little Mermaid here. That movie wasn't out yet. He's talking to Jerusalem. Ariel most likely means altar hearth, which is where the sacrifices were burnt to God. Jerusalem was the home of the temple where sacrifices were given to God, so that makes sense as you read on, you can see that this is clearly written to those who worship God, but not in the right way. So let's start with verses 1 through 4. Our Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let their feasts run their rounds. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there will be moaning, moaning and lamentation, and she shall be like me to an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all round, and will besiege you with towers, and will raid seed's works against you. And you will be brought low... From the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech shall be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. So obviously everything's not all right here with the city of Jerusalem. It was once amazing, right, with King David mentioned as a strong Christian ruler. But now what's happening? Year after year passes, and there are just more feasts. Feasts were used as a celebration, kind of like a Christmas or Easter dinner. But just because you eat Easter ham at 3 p.m. for some reason, that doesn't mean that God is pleased. The act of eating a certain food at a certain time doesn't inherently demand God's approval, right? But sometimes, we as Christians can assume that our spiritual rituals are all we need to please God or earn His approval or anything of that nature. That's what's happening in our text with the years going by with more feasts but no real spiritual growth. They're doing the right action but not the right motive. They're just doing it out of obligation. Now theologian John Piper has a really great analogy to kind of make this click for us. He describes buying his wife flowers. Buying his wife flowers. And when his, ask, when his wife asks, oh my goodness, this is so great, why'd you get me flowers? He says, I saw it in a movie that husbands are supposed to buy their wife flowers, so I did. Now that's, that's wrong, right? It's, it's the right action, buying your wife flowers is something nice to do, but when you just say I did it out of obligation, it can hurt her feelings. The wife wouldn't be happy, it's not out of love, it's out of obligation, and worse, obligation without love as the foundation. For another example, we don't just go to church because that's what Christians do in America, so I guess I'll go to church. No, we go to experience God for our joy and fulfillment in Him, and we go to learn more about Him and corporately worship Him together. Christians do it for a reason, not just to have something to do on Sunday. So look at what happens when God's people assume that spiritual rituals alone are all they need to please Him. Look at verses 2 through 4. God is described here as almost like their enemy, right? He distresses them. He rises around them. They're scared. They will be brought low because they need to humble themselves before God. And it's not wrong for God to be against his people in this way, just as it's not wrong for the wife to be upset at the husband for just buying her flowers because he just thought that's what husbands do. God deserves our love and our devotion, not just our empty rituals. Remember that those rituals are born out of love, and that foundation cannot be forgotten. A really good example for this is how we like to think about Christmas, right? We always push people to remember the reason behind the season. It's not Santa, it's not gifts, but it's the birth of Jesus Christ. We push people to celebrate the holiday for that reason, not just celebrate it Because that's what you do in December. It's the same concept, but with everything that we do on a daily basis, not just holidays. If we don't worship God as we are, we don't draw near to him. He has given us these ways and these rituals for us to get near to him. But when we check spiritual rituals off like a list, we are actually worshiping our convenience and our comfort above him. Let's continue with verses 5 through 8. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of your ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with great noise, with whirlwind and tempest, and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her in her stronghold will distress her and be like a dream, a vision of the night. And when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakens with his hunger and is not satisfied, when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. Now among these exhortations, there's an encouragement, right? Even though God's people are cast down and God is rightfully angry at them, he will still, still save them from their enemies. Even though their foes are a multitude like small dust, God will appear in an instant and deliver them. Two quick notes on this section. One, see the immense, immense power of our God. He is described as coming with thunder, earthquakes, devouring fire, power which no man can truly harness. Two, the enemies of God's people will never completely overcome them. It will be like a dream to them where they believe they have victory only to wake up and realize that they lost. God will always win. He will always save his people from total destruction, whether they worship him rightly or not. God is rightfully angry with his people as they are merely going through the actions, they're merely going through the motions without the love behind it, and yet he still saves them. He is still far more faithful than we are or ever will be. God may require a lot from us, But he gives more. Don't assume that God is like us. He's better. Let's finish with verses 9 through 12 in this section. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk but not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. When they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. So here Isaiah goes back to the issue of God's people worshipping only out of obligation in love. And not love, sorry. He does this in three scenarios, right? Feeling drunk without drinking alcohol being unable to understand because heads are covered, and being unable to read a book because it's sealed. This is how God describes Christian acts, Christian rituals, that are not done in love for him. So how do we bring this to today? Singing the worship songs without singing as an expression of love to him is like staggering around drunk, looking for something to hold on to. Not listening to the sermon because you're bored, is like being unable to understand because your heads are covered. And if you're not reading the Bible to grow in your understanding and love of God, it might as well be sealed, or you might as well not be able to read. It's completely missing the point. Just being in or in close proximity to a church building isn't what's pleasing to God. Location alone isn't what's pleasing to God. It's going to church to learn and fellowship and worship. That's what's pleasing to God. The act of listening to a sermon or reading the Bible isn't what's pleasing to God. It's listening and reading with a desire to learn. God is the one who makes things holy. The Bible is holy because it tells us about God. That's what makes it holy. This church building is holy because it's where we go to worship God. You are holy. Not because of your own effort, but because you draw near to God. Remember the source of your holiness. Remember the source of your joy. And draw near to Him again. When we struggle with enthusiasm to worship, or when we struggle to learn from enthusiasm to learn from Him, we need to draw near to him again and ask him to stir our hearts. And we know based on this passage that we don't have to assume that's what he wants because he tells us that's what we want. he wants. The warning here isn't struggling to understand. If you're reading a tough section in the Bible and you don't understand it, that's, that's not the warning here. God isn't upset at you for doing that. The warning here is for people who don't want to understand. Who don't care about the deeper meaning. Who only come out of obligation and not love. Who assume that all God wants is meaningless rituals instead of love. That's what the warning here is. So church, does your worship come from obligation or from love? Do you love God like a father? Or do you simply obey him like a boss? And Sunday is just another work day. God does not require sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice alone. God desires what the sacrifice should come from, which is a humble heart, born out of love for him. King Saul received a similar warning from the prophet Samuel. The prophet Samuel warned King Saul, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of deviation, and presumption is as iniquity and adultery. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from becoming king. To lovingly obey God is better than simple sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice alone. Buying your wife flowers out of love, telling her that the beauty of the flowers reminded you of the beauty of her, that's better than just buying her flowers because you saw it in a movie. It's the same thing. And now this is why we have our monthly potlucks, and this is why our monthly potlucks are encouraging. Right? We use it as a time to fellowship, to grow, to check in on one another, to love one another, which is pleasing to God. If we simply grab the food to, hey, it's free food, right? And then we left and assumed that we checked off our fellowship, that would be wrong. We don't need to assume what's pleasing to God. We know what's pleasing to Him, a heart that's devoted to Him and rituals that are born out of love. Our next next section is verses 13 to 21. The application point is don't assume how God will act. Don't assume how God will act. Let's start with verses 13 through 14. And the Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouths and on me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discerning of their discerning men shall be hidden. In these two verses, we see a problem, and then the Lord's solution, a problem, and then the Lord's solution. The problem is, like I said before, the God's people are worshiping and honoring Him, but their hearts are far from Him, and they're only doing it because that's what they've been told to do by others. The second prob- the solution, the second thing, the solution, is we see what God does about it. He does wonders with His people. In the last section, we saw God's people doing rituals without love. And now we see why. Their hearts are far from him. And again, this is not like waking up on Sunday morning and feeling a little sleepy so you're not as excited for church. We've all been there. That's not the issue here. This isn't forgetting to do the reading for growth group or being 15 minutes late. That's not the issue here. This is not a warning for people who don't understand or maybe have trouble getting into it. This is a warning for those who do not want to understand, who assume that all God wants is just meaningless rituals instead of love. The core problem here is that their hearts are far from God. And we see here that their religion isn't even their own, right? It's taught by men. It's worldly, not godly. In verse 13, it says, Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They only fear God. They only know God because of what other people have told them. So in what ways is your relationship with God worldly based on what others have told you other than how God himself guides you and teaches you? Do you act a certain way, vote a certain way, or believe certain things just because other Christians do it? Or your beliefs and attitudes spirit-led and from a desire to be more like Christ? Just because a popular figure or someone on the news or a political candidate, just because they say they're Christian, or just because a church publicly opposes something, or even a fellow church member or even a pastor coming up here to preach, voices their opinion, all of that shouldn't voice or shouldn't guide your own opinions. You shouldn't blindly follow. Christ should guide our views. Our fear of the Lord doesn't come from people coming up here and telling you, fear the Lord. Our fear of the Lord comes from learning more about Him, hearing from Him in His Spirit, hearing from Him in His Word, praying to Him. And the other part of that is don't assume that God is honored or pleased when someone acts how a Christian is supposed to act. Be more concerned with what actually pleases Him, how close your heart is to Him, how deep your desire is to know Him more, and how great your resolve is to act like Him by putting others first, worshiping without ceasing, and doing all to His glory. And this is a serious issue in this passage with the people of God. They may worship Him, but it's empty. Their hearts are far from Him. And yet, look again at what God does in verse 14. He says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What does God do when his people's hearts are far from him? When they only do things because others tell them to instead of obeying God himself? What does he do? Does he abandon them? Does he leave them? Does he just destroy them? No. He uses them for his glory ever still. He will do wonder upon wonder with his people, and he will guide them on the right path by destroying the wisdom of their so-called wise men. And I know it's easy to get caught by the word wonders here, but even just coming back to his people, when their hearts are far from Him, that's a miracle within itself. When His people continually turn away and away from Him, and yet He still comes back. Even that itself is a, is a miracle. We don't need some big, flashy miracle to know that God is powerful and that He loves His people. Before, God criticized them, saying that the fear of Him only came because it was commanded by others. Now, he says that he will bring his true wisdom and that it will overcome the earthly wisdom as other, of others. Or, as Proverbs 2 says, for the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. True wisdom comes from God, not from the world. And again, wisdom coming from God doesn't automatically mean that it comes from someone preaching, or from church, or from another Christian. As John warns us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone into the world. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Whenever I'm up here or Stephen's up here or Steve Grissom who regularly preaches here, everything that we say about these words in the Bible, those need to be tested. You hold us accountable. Our elders hold us accountable. If anything that we say does not match what is written in Scripture, that needs to be addressed. As we are here to be your servants, we are here to serve the church, not the other way around. Test everything against Scripture. Does someone's wisdom involve the love, humility, and grace of Christ? Or is it selfish, prideful, and unforgiving? Is it the wisdom of the world which God will destroy? Or is it true wisdom that comes from Him? Just because something, someone says something is pleasing to God doesn't mean that it is. Test everything. See Christ above all. See Christ's wisdom above all. And we see these two wisdoms come head to head in verses 15 through 21. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The, the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed of him who say, formed it, he has no understanding. It is yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day... The deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be offender, and lay a snare for him who approves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him is who is in the right. My point for this section is don't assume how God will act. We see a lot of assumptions in these couple of verses. God doesn't see us. God doesn't know us. He has no understanding. That's worldly wisdom. And yet this wisdom is completely upside down. God has formed us like a potter forms clay. He knows every bit of us. From the hair on our heads to the state of our hearts. Do not assume that God doesn't know you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows if your love is genuine, if your worship is true, and if your wisdom is His wisdom. For some of us, that is extremely comforting. For some of us, it's extremely terrifying. And as I mentioned before, some of the wonders of God are taking what is far from him and drawing it nearer. Taking a dead heart and making it alive. James writes that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we see that in these verses, right? God takes a field and turns it into a forest while a great garden is reduced to a simple field. Those who are blind and deaf by their sin to the goodness of God, they will be healed, and the meek and poor will have joy in exalting. The ruthless will come to nothing, and those to act only, those who act only to hurt others will be just cut off. And we've seen this in the Bible before, with Jesus himself saying, "The last will be first and the first last." The world assumes that God will act in the favor of the rich, the powerful and even those who are morally good. But God acts in favor of His people, those who humble themselves before Him and allow Him to guide their steps. Timothy warns us to avoid people who have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Even Jesus, Quotes this section of Isaiah that we're looking at today while rebuking the Pharisees. Appearance of godliness doesn't mean that God is on their side and will act in their favor. Don't assume that God will act in favor of those who you think he will act in favor of. Don't assume that God will act or that he could be used or manipulated with false worship, fake worship, and fear that only comes because it's commanded. Instead, we should know that God acts in a way that is cult- countercultural to us, even today in America. He acts in favor of the poor, the meek, the humble. He acts in favor of those who act like his son, not like those who only claim to act like his son. So follow Christ, not Christians, and seek Christians who truly follow Christ. Not their passions or their pride or their greed. The book of Proverbs says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. That's one of the reasons why God commands us to elect elders among us. And that's why elders aren't just instantly given in one day, right? But they are presented to the church body. They give of their testimony so that we can discern if they are Christians who truly follow Christ. And then once they have been elected, once they have been proven, so to speak, as the church body says, yes, these are men who truly follow Christ, then we can follow them. So we know that we shouldn't engage in Christian rituals only for the sake of rituals alone but we should do them out of love and worship of God. We know to be cautious of worldly wisdom that says we can assume how God will act without seeking his character ourselves. So now that we've seen the wrong way, let's take a look at the right way to seek God and engage in rituals, the right way to grow in him, with verses 22 through 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his grace grow pale, his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Now this is the second time in our passage where the Lord is directly quoted. The first being his exhortation of his people's hearts being far from him, and then turning to promise that he would do wonders with them. And the second time is very, very similar. God is making a promise to his people that they will come to understanding and accept instruction. They will grow. They will not always be lost. Because they are God's people, after all, right? Our God is more faithful than we will ever be. He doesn't jump from nation to nation looking for suitable people and then when they stray away from him, he moves on. He will punish his people, yes, but he will grow them. Just as a frustrated parent of a teenager doesn't disown them when they don't want to hug anymore or don't want to sit at the dinner table, God holds fast to the promises that he makes to his people. But God's people are now ashamed they are defeated. It's probably because their hearts are far from them. Their hearts are far from their great father. Going through the motions, doing empty worship, not surrendering yourself completely to God, these are things that are exhausting. Like I said before, because it feels like work. But when your heart is fully given to God, When you commune with him in worship and prayer and seeking wisdom, there is joy. It's the same thing. You're doing the same actions, but when your heart is in it, there is joy. And why? Because that's what we were created to do. We were created to be with our God. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus himself said, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. We get joy from being with our creator. So pray to your father. Draw near to him. Worship him and find joy in him because that's what you were created to do. When you do that, when you humbly submit yourself to God, when you pour out your heart to him in prayer, when you worship him because of the wonders that he's done with you, you, when you seek to do good, not for personal gain, but for his glory, then we find joy. And that's what happens in our passage here. Look at verse 23. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. When God's people act in a way that surrenders their whole heart in a way that's pleasing to God, it gets passed down to their children and their children and so on and so forth. We have to remember that God is outside of time and therefore with us right now in our momentary struggles while simultaneously stewarding the generations of the future. God cares about his people past, present, and future. He cares about his people in Jerusalem just like he cares about his worldwide church today. That's why our verse doesn't just say the family of Jacob, but the house of Jacob. It's the future generations. It's the legacy, too. And what a legacy it is. Jacob is one of the leaders of the people of Israel from the line of Abraham which God has chosen to be his people. And now Jacob sees what has become of his people. Yes, he sees the shame in turning away from God, but he also sees the wonders, the work and sanctification which God has done. And that brings joy. Our hope for the future, like we sung about before, is not just about the return of Christ. But it's also that Christ's name will continue to be proclaimed in worship for centuries down the line until Christ returns. No one builds a church just expecting it to worship for a few years and then shut down. That wasn't our intention when we replanted this church. We want this church to continually preach the word Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and to grow in holiness and membership. We want our numbers to increase, not so that we can show off how big of a church we are, but that more people will come to Christ. We want to look to the next generation of First Baptist Church members, our church children, so to speak, and we want to stand in awe of what God has done in situate and in the South Shore for the glory of his name alone. But not because we worshiped extra hard, or that we put on great events, or that we did anything ourselves, but that we stepped out of the way and let God do the work and the means of grace that He has instructed us and promised that He has blessed. That we surrendered ourselves and our church to Him. And that we didn't go through the motions, but that we truly loved one another and loved Him. But how exactly did God's people surrender their whole heart? What changed? At first their hearts were so far from him, and now they worshiped him. What changed? Read verse 24. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Accepting instruction means this one thing, meekness. It's humility. That's what changed. And we've heard this before from Christ in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean for God's people to be meek or humble? What can we learn from this change of heart? It means that they have a gentle, kind spirit. A humble attitude that completely accepts instruction. God has said that he will do wonders with his people. One of those wonders... Is humbling his people. Before in our passage, we saw that he will bring them low to the ground, right? He will humble them. And that humility is what causes them to accept God's instruction and be changed. Now, this idea, being meek, being meek is countercultural, not just in our country, but all the way across the globe. We want to make the most money, have the most possessions do the most things, have the best life. We want to do what we want to do, which is hardly a meekly statement. No wonder our hearts go far from God and our rituals become empty when our hearts are so busy greedily seeking our own desires rather than God. And yet, even worse, when people are meek, When people are quiet, when people are submissive, they are seen as weak, and they easily get taken advantage of. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Kevin Burgess, says, do you think being meek is weak? Try being meek for one week. How much of a shift in our lives would it be to be quiet, to humbly accept instruction, to humbly submit to those above you, even God, and accept instruction without crawl or pushback. I know it would be extremely hard for me. How hard would it be to fully submit to God and to seek and accept his instruction for us in his word without trying to twist it to fit our own narrative? How hard would it be to read the Bible And not see ourselves in every single story, but instead see the power of God. I know I struggle with that every single time. Being meek doesn't seem very weak anymore, does it? All of this is connected to our main point this morning, not to assume things about God. What does it mean to assume? Making assumptions is not meek. It's not humble. It's prideful. When we assume, we take our own perspective. When we assume, we use our own personal bias. When we assume, we take on the role of God ourselves. And pridefully, not humbly, tell him what we want. Rather than the other way around. That's what happens when we assume. But when we are meek, when we are humble, when we act in submission to him when we give him our whole heart in worship, then we can have faith that God will work through his people and their future generation to the glory of his name. That's what Isaiah teaches us today in showing us the dangers of assuming things about God. Now as we conclude, I want you to imagine a scenario. Imagine a student attending university or college. I honestly don't know the difference between university or college. If you do, you can tell me during the potluck. University or college, whichever one, a student attending, but he rarely ever attends class. But when he does attend class, he just interrupts the professor, tries to lead class himself, gives the class his own homework assignment instead of the professor's, and he just assumes what the workload will be based on the last title of what the textbook says. Do you think this student would pass or even graduate? Do you think the professor would say that he was a good student? That his heart was in the class? No. So it is when we assume things about God. When we assume what he wants or how he will act. Let's be honest. Let's put it all out there. We don't assume things about God because It's out of love for him. We assume things about God out of love for ourselves. We want to have a reason to be upset with God when he doesn't give us what we want. We assume he'll give us what we want because we take the place of God ourselves every day. We don't humbly submit before him. We don't give him our whole hearts and our hearts are far from him in worship because of it. How sad it is that that is the attitude of God's people. Not only in the book of Isaiah, but often today. So instead, we need to be meek in humbly accepting instruction from God and by worshiping Him out of love, not out of obligation. And we've seen reason in our passage today why we should love God. He is faithful to His people far more than we are to Him. He will do mighty wonders with his people. He will free their hearts from their sins and he will guide them back to himself using their meekness. And that's how we know that faith is the opposite of assumption. Assumption takes and is out of pride. Faith believes that God will act like he has promised. Doesn't assume how God will act. Believe that God will act in the way He's promised. So take a pause and ask yourself, am I acting an assumption of God or am I acting out of faith in God? Assumption says God will be okay with this because I'm okay with this. Or I'm a Christian so everything I do is godly no matter who gets hurt or led astray. Faith says let me humbly seek wisdom before I act. Let me trust that God's instruction is right whether I personally believe it or not, or whether or not it profits me. Church, let us be known to act in faith rather than in assumption. Let us humbly seek wisdom and act in meekness, not because we're weak, but because we are strong enough to put aside our sinful desires for the good of others and for the glory of our God. Titus has this encouragement for us as we close from Titus 3. He writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness of God and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, reveal yourself to us. Bring us closer to you through your word. Lord, we don't have to assume things about you because you tell us about yourself. Help us to read the Bible knowing that it is your story, not ours. Help us read the Bible, seeking out your promises and your wisdom. Give us discernment when we hear voices surrounding us every day, Christian or otherwise. Give us discernment. Let you be the filter for which we hear things through. And Lord, help us to worship you, not our assumptions of you, because you are worth it. Let our worship of you be genuine. Bring our hearts closer to you this morning. And guide us in fellowship with our potluck. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. (laughs)